Good morning. Do you want to open up the Word of God? Um, We're going to read from Mark chapter 10 as we prepare our hearts for the preaching of God's Word. So Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32 until 45. Jesus again predicts his death. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going to go up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised with the baptism I'm baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you, Trish, for reading so well, and Jenny for leading us in prayer there. Now, I do hope, and it has been my prayer over the last few weeks in this series, that God has been teaching all of us from each of these passages and each of these topics. I certainly have been finding that myself, that I've been learning. God is teaching me something each and every week um, for my own godliness and growth, and hopefully for us as a church as well. But let's do a quick revision. The first week was faith that, anyone remembers? Faith that perseveres. And so I hope that over the past few weeks that you have been finding that that's the case, that your faith is persevering even in trials and testings, that you are growing and persevering faith. What about the second week? It was love that Love that serves, that's right, as we understand the love of God for us that will overflow in our love for each other, that will be a serving, sacrificial type of love. What about the third week? It was hope that, hope that motivates. We're thinking about eternity, our home, 
And that should continue to keep us uh, in perspective, give us the right perspective that whatever happens in this life will end up in heaven, in our heavenly home. The fourth week was suffering that, that builds. Remember, suffering, even in the midst of suffering, we can somehow, in the kindness and economy of God, rejoice because it is for the building of our character, of perseverance, character and hope. Now that week I did uh, speak of my good friend um, Dan and Teresa about their little daughter and this past week uh, uh, their little daughter uh, went uh, to the Lord. So 77 days um, uh, they had with their little daughter. Um, but that was that week, but hope builds character. Now the next week, in fact um, last week, holiness, what was that? Holiness that inspires that's right so we're to be inspired by holy living we're to live holy lives honoring god in the thousands of decisions each day that is hard but that's what we strive to do and today today is leadership that sacrifices i mean in the providence of god what a week we had in politics and what a topic for us to consider maybe god gave us this specifically or uh, uh, that happened in our political world so that we can think about it here but anyway i'm sure god has bigger plans than that but let's join our hearts again let's pray and consider this heavenly father we thank you that uh, you are the god the lord of lords and king of kings help us to think rightly about what it means to lead uh, what it means to lead sacrificially just as our lord jesus did for us and we pray this in jesus name Amen. Now, when we come to think of leadership, what is it that comes to mind? Now, I'm sure for many of us, many of the things that have been happening this past week comes to mind. So I suspect for many of us, it's at least thinking about political leaders. That comes to mind. We started with this week with uh, one prime minister. We now have another prime minister, Scott Morrison. In this past week, there were two leadership spills, and he's the one who came up on top in the end. But it is an interesting time uh, in our political world, particularly in our nation. And it, it shouldn't be surprising, in fact. Since the year 2000, Australia has had over 30 leadership spills. I mean, that's only 18 years ago, over 30 leadership spills. Uh, from the year 2010, we've had six different prime ministers in eight years. Six different prime ministers. Now, do you know who was the last Prime Minister to serve his full term? John Howard. That's right, John Howard. It wasn't so long ago, but he was the last Prime Minister to serve his full term. The BBC has dubbed Australia as the coup capital of the Western world. I mean, that, that should be embarrassing. You expect coups not in the Western world, but it's happening. Now, I wonder whether that is what you're thinking of when you're thinking about leadership, and particularly leadership as Christians. To be a leader in our world is really to get high and high and high up, up the social ladder. And so the high up you go, the greater you are, and of course the greater the privileges and the status and honour. And in fact, you get nicer perks the high up you are. The ex-MPs, they have really nice perks. I mean, it's good to be an MP when you're in retirement. But I suspect for most of us, you would think the way I would think, that that is not the way leadership should be. We shouldn't be thinking that way, or leaders should, should not be behaving that way. That leaders should not be in roles and responsibilities of leadership for their own sake, for their own good. 
They are there to serve, to minister. That is their function. In fact, that is why in our system of government, our MPs are called ministers. Do you notice that? They're called ministers. Isn't that a strange thing? But it comes from a Christian heritage. It's because they are there not for their own sake to serve their own egos, but they are there to serve the people they are meant to serve. It comes from a Christian heritage. And so what does it mean to be the prime minister? Not to be the big boss. To be the prime minister means to be the prime servant of all. That comes from a Christian heritage. And so, of course, the uproars this past week is that are these people in politics, are they serving their egos or are they there to serve the nation, to serve Australians? In fact, it's not only the language of our politicians. We call them ministers. They are called to serve. But also the language in our defence force. Did you notice that we call the Army, the Navy, and what's the other one? Army, Navy, Air Force. We call them services. Isn't that interesting? It's because they are there to serve their nation, to defend their nation. And, and now we've got Michael Galak over in Iraq for two months. We, sh- we must keep him in our prayers. They are there to serve. They are called services, Army, Navy, Air Force. In fact, even our police officers, what's their job? Not to be the boss around town. Their job is there to serve the community. You see, it comes from a a good Christian heritage. In fact, if you work for the government, any government workers here, you guys have the nice life, I think. (laughs) I used to be a government worker. I worked for the Department of Defence for six years before Bible college, and it was a good life. We were, in fact, um, uh, not asked to work too long hours because there's a balance of life and family and all that, but... What are public, um, those who work for the government called? They're called public servants, not public bosses and rulers, right? They're called public servants. Again, this is our Christian heritage. Leadership God's way is about service. Leadership by service. And so how are we meant to think about leadership? Now let's broaden it out, not just about our political rulers and leaders, but about us. How are we meant to think about leadership? Now, just in case any one of us here might be tempted to think, well, this topic today is not really about me. I'm not leadership material. I'm no leader. Well, I want to suggest to each and every one of you that this is relevant for you. Each and every one of you, whether you're young or old, whether you're seen to be a leader or not, it is relevant. And the reason why it is relevant for all of us is because we all lead in one way or another, officially or not. We all lead in one way or another. And that is because we all influence in one way or another. And that can be simply by the natural relationships that God has granted us. By these natural relationships, we lead. And so fathers amongst us, We are to be, by God's appointment, leaders over the household, over our own household. We have responsibility over it. And so when a father neglects his responsibility, the family suffers. If we are parents, these are natural relationships God has given us where then requires leadership. 
If we are a parent, we have responsibility over our children and the household together. If we are siblings, well, depending on culture, in some culture, being the older sibling, you have specific responsibilities. I'm the eldest of three boys, and so there are certain responsibilities that are laid upon me and not my brothers. I'm there to lead them, and hopefully I'm leading them okay. They're, they're both, in fact, ministers as well now. Grandparents, you have a natural, God-given responsibility to lead. And even kids. We see kids on the playground playing, and you see those who are influencing others. That's exercising, exercising some form of leadership. But of course also in the workplace, amongst colleagues, at uni, amongst peers, amongst friends, and even, of course, amongst the church family. There are ways we relate and influence each other where we can and do all lead in one way or another. And so today I want us all to, to heed these words, and that is, it is relevant. Whether you, you think you're leadership material or not, it doesn't matter because you do lead in one way or another. And so we need to understand what good leadership looks like, what good leadership we should expect in others, and so what we should also expect in ourselves. And so let's have a look at this passage. Keep your Bibles to, open to Mark 10. Now, it doesn't take a genius to work out what bad leadership looks like. We see it often enough, don't we? Leadership the wrong way is always self-focused, self-interested, about egos. That is bad leadership. And sadly, it's not uncommon to see those in power corrupted by power. We see it all the time. The previous Malaysian Prime Minister, he was charged with corruption for over 3.4 billion pounds. That's a lot of money, 3.4 billion pounds. His home was raided and police found over 28 million US dollars in 35 bags at his luxury home. I mean, it's hard to imagine the Prime Minister getting all that honestly. But remember, he's the Prime Minister which means he's meant to be the first amongst the servants. And so we see wrong leadership enough, don't we, in our world, in our culture. But we also see it in the Old Testament. I mean, you read First and Second Samuel, you read First and Second Kings, you see palace intrigue all the time, princes killing princes to get to the throne for their own glory. King Saul, jealous of David and wants him killed. Absalom, the very son of David himself, wants his father dead to get to the throne. And throughout pretty much every kingdom, you see it all the time. Kings, brothers of kings, sons of kings, daughters of kings, fighting, vying for the throne, for glory, for honour, for status. Even in English history, for those of us who know English history, the War of the Roses, Decades of fighting between the House of York and the House of Lancaster. Now, I learned this from movies, but it's true, I read it up. King Henry VI, unable to produce an heir, so he was defeated by a guy who became King Henry IV. He had two sons, though one of them was meant to be king. It was his brother Richard III who took the throne. 
And then later, he was killed by Henry VII, and then was King Henry VII's son, King Henry VIII, who started the Church of England. But you see, kings killing each other, or people usurping kings for the throne. We see it all the time in the Old Testament and also in our history, and that is wrong leadership. It was, in fact, no different in our passage amongst the very disciples of Jesus, because what did they do? Look at what they did. Straight after Jesus predicted that he will die, this is their Lord and Master they've been living with for a few years. After he predicted that he will die, look at verse 33. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Now imagine hearing that, being a disciple of Jesus. What were these two disciples concerned with? There's no grief there, no sorrow. I mean, this is their Lord who was, who was going to die soon. Instead, we see here, James and John, they were only thinking of themselves. Look at verse 37. Look, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. That is them saying to Jesus, oh, we know you're going to die, but who cares? Let us be at your right and left. Give us the position of status and glory. And the other ten disciples, were they any better? Well, let's have a look. They were not like, how dare you, James and John? How insensitive of you. After our Lord said that he will die, you guys are here worried about your own status. Was that what they said? Well, no, instead, what did they do? Look at verse 41 now. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They were angry. They, they, they thought, we missed out. We should have got there first. They were also thinking about themselves. But what was the type of leader Jesus was after? How did Jesus understand and assess their understanding of leadership and greatness? Well, their understanding of greatness and leadership is just like the world today, isn't it? And I suspect it's the way most of us would think if we're honest with ourselves, if we think about the context and the opportunities and the status and whatever we have in life. I suspect if we're honest with ourselves, we would think just like the disciples. And that is the higher up we go, the greater we are. It's very natural to think that way. The more we have below us, the greater we are. The less we do in life, the greater we are. And we measure this all the time, even amongst Christians. We measure our greatness by the job we do, by the money we make, by the place we live, by the family we have, by the number of descendants we have, by the positions we hold. If we're honest with ourselves, even as Christians, we fall into this trap all the time because it is the way of the world. Greatness means going up high and higher, but it is wrong, and we know that. I mean, I have fallen into this trap as well. I mean, I've made silly mistakes, but let me tell you of one mistake I've made in the past, and I've repented of this, but I'll use it as a joke, but know that it's only, it's, it's only a joke and it's not true. Anymore, anyway. But it was one time, and it is this. When I was a Bible college student, 
which meant that I was studying full-time with a family. So Yvonne not working, I'm not working. We've got three kids at Bible College. Two of our boys were born during Bible College, which meant we had no income. And so when people were to ask us, so what are you doing at the moment? Well, I would say I'm a, I'm a student at a Bible college. If they're, if they're Christians, often they'll be quite impressed and they'll be okay. But if they're not a Christian and they're not impressed by that, what, what do you mean you're studying? You're a grown man. You've got a family. How do you support your family? Well, what would then happen is if they give me a strange look and they just don't look very impressed with me, I would sometimes feel the need to add, well, I used to work. And I used to work as an aerospace engineer just to impress them a bit, to, to show them I'm no bum, you know, I used, I, I used to work. And if they're not really convinced by that, I would emphasize aero, not mechanical and civil, you see, but aero. And look, I did not do arts, but anyway, no, <laughs> no arts, there's a life in that too. But that's the way of the world, and I've repented of that, that's, it's funny now, but but it showed that I was living the way of this world. The higher up you go, the greater you are. But of course, Jesus says that is wrong. Look at verse 42. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. I mean, that's what leadership in our world looks like. The higher up you go, the greater you are. And it does feel like that this is what's happening in our political world at the moment. I'm really hoping to hear, I'm not sure if he's said it yet, but I'm hoping to hear that our new Prime Minister will say, I'm here to serve the people first. I'm wanting to hear that. I'm hoping he will say that. John Anderson, former Deputy Prime Minister, he said in an article this past week in The Australian, he said this, I think we've reached a point in Australian history where every single one of us, from the Prime Minister down, needs to ask what he or she should do, not what they want to do. From the Prime Minister down, the only priority now should be, how can I best serve the country? Now, of course, what John Anderson was getting at there is that good leadership reminding at all levels, you see, from the Prime Minister down, it is about service. Now, where do you think John Anderson got that idea from? Now, if you don't know, he got it from his own master, his own Lord, his own Saviour, Jesus Christ, because John Anderson is a Christian man. John Anderson, a devout Christian man, a wonderful man, had a, a wonderful privilege of having lunch with him earlier this year. You see, he got his way of leadership when he was Deputy Prime Minister from Jesus. It is about service. And that's what Jesus goes on to speak about in our text. Leadership the right way. You see, leadership the right way is never for self-interest. Leadership the right way is always for the interests of those around them, for the good of others. And historically, this is what we saw amongst even the kings and rulers of the world. In fact, the greatest kings were those who did see their rule this way. During the English War of the Roses, the kings, in fact, went to the front line of battle and they fought and many died. 
today. I mean, the rulers, they're behind palaces with secret services and guards and armies. But historically, they went to the front line of battle to fight for their people. And so during the, the English War of the Roses, the, the kings who fought to defend the throne, Edward IV, Richard III, Henry VII, that's what kings did. They served their people by putting their lives on their line for their people. That's a ruler. That's one who leads by service. And that's why in the Old Testament, that's why King Saul was a failure. We all know the story of King Saul when Goliath came to face Israel. Who was it who should have gone to fight against Goliath? King Saul was a head taller than everyone else. He should have been the one who went to the front line of battle to face Goliath. And how did he fail? Well, he stayed back at the palace and he allowed a teenage boy, David, to fight the fight that he should have fought. And in fact, it was how King David himself failed. He was a great warrior and he was a great king when he was fighting, when he was a warrior. Now, we know David failed miserably in adultery and also in murder. But even before his major failure, he failed in a subtle way. There's a subtle comment at the beginning of the same chapter in 2 Samuel when he committed adultery. The very first verse we read this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. What were the kings doing? They were out fighting for their people. But what was David doing? He remained in Jerusalem. And that was the beginning of his downfall. You see, leadership the right way are those who place the interests of their people before their own. In fact, it's what even kids are taught today in schools. I was thinking about this talk a few weeks ago and I spoke to Esther and I said, I'm going to give a talk about leadership. And she told me at school they're teaching about leadership and they were given this quote. The quote is nice and cute and it goes like this. A star wants to see themselves rise to the top. A leader wants to see those around them become stars. I mean, that's what our primary school kids are taught and that that is good there's a sense of leadership where it is not for self-interest but for the interest of others for the good of others but now consider what Jesus says that quote is nice and cute but it doesn't go far enough because Jesus says if you want to be great you have to be the lowest if you want greatness in life, you have to go to the lowest of the lows. And notice here, Jesus doesn't say, don't aim for greatness at all. But instead he says, aim for greatness the right way. And the right way is to be the lowest, to be the servant, to be the slave. You see, Jesus turns our world upside down. It's not the higher up you go, the greater you are. It is the lower you go, the greater you are. And that's why John Anderson, 
That's what he was saying. The best prime ministers are those who are there to serve, to be the slave of the country, not there for their egos or glory or status, but for the people they serve. Jesus turns our world upside down. And so we see, look at verses 43 and 44. Jesus speaking to disciples, he says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. I mean, it really turns our world upside down, doesn't it? The great boss are those who put the interests of their staff beyond before their own. The president, who would run outside the, the, the motorcade, outside the car and have his secret services on the inside, that's greatness. We won't see that. The king who fought and died for his people, that is greatness. And where do we see the greatest picture of all? Where do we see the greatest leader of all? Well, we see that here. Because you don't get anyone greater than Jesus, do you? You can't get any higher than Jesus. He sits on the throne of God in heaven. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one who has given us life. You can't get any higher than Jesus. You can't get any greater than Jesus. But you also don't get anyone who goes lower than Jesus. You see, for any human being to die for another person, that is sacrifice. But for the Son of God to become flesh, to die for the very lives he gave life to, that is sacrifice. And to die in the most inhumane way possible. You don't get greater than Jesus. You don't get lower than Jesus. And so Jesus is the greatest of all. And so verse 45, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is greatness. Becoming a slave for the good of others. And so now, what are we to think as Christians of leadership? Regardless of what type of leader, whether we feel like we're leaders or not, we are to think this way. It is like this. It is the way of Christ. It is the way of the cross. It is a leadership that sacrifices. But what has it got to do with me? Some of you might still be asking. Or even though I think we all lead in one way or another, because we all influence in one way or another, officially or not, and it might be by the natural relationships God has given us, or it might be the responsibilities that we have been entrusted with, whether it is at home, with the family, at school, amongst peers, at work, amongst colleagues, at church, in the many and various responsibilities. If this is what Jesus is like, then this should be what we desire to be like. And so I want to put it to all of us this morning that I think we should desire this for ourselves. That we should all desire to be this type of leader, officially or not. We should all desire this type to be this type of leader. That I do lead, that I do come 
in all the contexts of life, in all the circumstances that I'm in, that I do come not to be served, but to serve. And why would I do that? Because that is greatness in the eyes of God. The lower you are, the greater you are. And so for all of us to aim for greatness, we aim for greatness this way, to go lower and lower and lower. That somehow in the kindness of God, that somehow in the opportunities that God gives us in life, wherever that might be, that somehow in the opportunities and the people that God has entrusted to us, what type of person should I be? What type of leader should I be? I'll be a sacrificial one, just as the Lord has been to me. And I think that should be our desire. Because if it's not our desire, what do you think that might mean if I don't desire this at all? Now, we might not desire because we think that it's about competence, but you see, it's not about competence at all. It is about the attitude of the heart. Am I using my life for the good of those around me? Am I using my life to be an influence for good? And so at home, around the dinner table, am I there to be served or to serve? When I'm with my friends and we're out, am I there to be served by them or to serve? When I'm at work with my colleagues, whether I have people above me or below me or whatever that might be, am I there to be served or to serve? And of course, when I'm at church each week, in our growth groups, in all the ministries we run here, am I there to be served or to serve? You see, to serve in such a way is greatness in the eyes of God. And so we should desire this, all of us. We all lead because we all influence in one way or another. Because in the end, what are we desiring to be like? Well, to live sacrificially, to lead sacrificially, means that we're being like our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we expect those who do lead us officially to sacrifice themselves for us, to serve us, to be there for our good, to be like Jesus to us, then we should also expect all of those things in ourselves. Whatever context in life, the attitude of my heart should be, I'm here to serve, not to be served. And so what this also means is that the greatest leaders are also great followers themselves because they always follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Follow me as I follow Christ. That is a great leader. And there are many great examples around. I'm sure you know of many great examples. I've seen many examples in my life. But I'd like to share with you the story of one example. A great leader who influenced an empire, but himself a great follower, following in the footsteps of Christ. Now this leader, many of you would know. This leader is William Wilberforce. He lived during the 18th and 19th century. He was one of those who was instrumental in getting the slave trade abolished in Britain. And later, slavery itself was abolished. But he was the one who was himself, before he did any leading, 
was led by many others, influenced by many others, influenced by significant people. When he was only a boy, about 10 years old, he was sent away by his mother to live with his auntie and uncle. Now, the mother didn't really know this, but the auntie and uncle were devout Methodists, devout Christians. They take God seriously and Jesus seriously. And so they taught little William Wilberforce the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, during that time, it was the time of enlightenment in England, in Britain, in Great Britain, people did not take Christians seriously. It's a bit like today, in fact. People thought those who took God seriously were a bit weird. They were despised. But this auntie and uncle had a huge influence on him and helped nurture even a little faith at that young tender age. And because of that experience, he, he sat under the teaching of John Newton. We'll know of John Newton. He's the amazing grace guy. And so that was for about two and a half years he was with them. Big influence. But then later in life he grew, he forgot about those things or that, that impression was gone. When he went to Cambridge, he mixed with the social elites of society, enjoyed lifestyles of parties and entertainment. And so his Christian beginnings was now a thing of the past. But he entered Parliament. Do you know how old he was when he entered Parliament? He was only 20 years old. Unbelievable. 20 years old. He entered Parliament with his good friend he started with, William Pitt, also 20 at that age. Over the next four years, they moved up ranks in politics. And when they were 24, he was a senior member of Parliament and his friend, good friend, William Pitt, became Prime Minister at 24. Is that shocking or what? They were mocked, of course, for their age, but they were good at their job. But it was about that time when he became a Christian for real. He met a professor at Cambridge. They went on holidays together. Isaac Milner, he was a genius of his time. And he found it surprising that such a smart person would believe in God. That was the culture. It was silly to believe and take God seriously. But Wilberforce found it surprising that Milner, such a smart man, would believe in God. And that shook his world once again. He was convicted and over the next two years he became a Christian. William Wilberforce, his worldview was turned upside down. And his biblical worldview started to affect him as a member of parliament. And how did that change? Well, he worked tirelessly for the decades to end the slave trade, which happened in 1807. But there's another area of his life of enormous influence that many of us might not know of. He shaped the empire in another way, not just ending the slave trade, but in another way. Because during this time, the British culture was completely immoral. It's hard to imagine. This is the 17-1800s. It was completely immoral. Though many were nominal Christians, it was very secular, and people just did not take God seriously. At that time, child labor was common. Children treated in horrendous ways, worked 12 hours a day, treated very poorly. Almost everyone during that time was addicted to alcohol, upper class were and the lower class were even in parliament members would come to parliament drunk 
Trafficking of women was a huge problem during this time in London. Now the stats are that 25% of the single women in London at that time were prostitutes. 25%. It was immoral that society. Hard to imagine now. Even the Prince of Wales, who would later become King George IV, was famous for womanizing. And so British culture at that time was completely immoral. We, we will not think this way, but during the Enlightenment, it was. And so what did Wilberforce do? Well, with the gifts and opportunities God gave him, and he knew this, he sensed this, he knew that abolishing the slave trade legally was only part of the task. He had to change the mind and the hearts of the British people. And so what he did, to fight against the social evils, he started to live out and encourage and modelled and led a life that was Christ-like, led a life that was like God, and he would work to make goodness fashionable. It was not fashionable to be good and moral, but he made goodness fashionable. He worked to change the culture of Britain. He would observe the Lord's Day, spend time with his family, play with the kids, and that was important to him. It was a way to shape the culture because back then fathers did not play with their kids. He also brought in the biblical worldview to change the mindset of the wealthy in society. He had many Christian supporters and patrons, and he said to them, as those who have been blessed much, you need to be a blessing to those who have little. You are obligated to care for the poor. And so he was mocked because of that, because the prevailing British thought was that if you're poor, that is your fault and you are under the judgment of God. But the cultural goodness of caring for the poor, the weak and the vulnerable in most of the Western world today was a large part because of Wilberforce. I found this surprising when I read of it. It was a large part because of him, how he shaped British culture. It was not fashionable, but he made goodness fashionable. And of course we know he was only doing that because he was a good follower himself, a follower of Christ. And so what, for what he did, he was threatened numerous times. The powers against him were strong. But this is a, a comment by a historian, Eric McTaxis. He said, from this book, Wilberforce's tremendous efforts to change the mindset over the course of many decades can rightly be seen as one of the most significant accomplishments in history. It was a radical idea taken by one man from the Gospels into mainstream British culture at a time when the British Empire was huge and tremendously influential. Consequently, these biblical ideas were spread throughout the world, especially throughout Western Europe and the, U and the new United States of America. That was the leader that he was. He came not to be served, but to serve, to lead sacrificially for the good of others, and it did cost him. I mean, you read of these great leaders of the past who were great followers themselves, and we ask, don't we wish that some of maybe our political leaders would have some of that? But I want to suggest, perhaps close to home, don't we want some of that in ourselves? We might never do what Wilberforce did, though God could raise some of us to do such big things. 
but we can in our own sphere, in our own context, in our own lives, in our own families, amongst our friends. We can be of such good influence. We can be such leaders that sacrifice. We come not to be served, but to serve, to lead sacrificially, to follow in the footsteps of Christ our Lord, who gave his life as a ransom for us. That's what we can strive for, and it affects all of us. Let's pray that God might help us do so. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who did come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we pray that you would produce that in us too, that we too might use our lives for the good of those around us, even if it costs us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.